Okay, you can open there in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Opposition to Jesus has been a, a constant theme that's been prevalent throughout the Gospel of Luke from really from the opening pages. We saw that Jesus would be one who would be opposed. There was a faithful Israelite named Simeon who was waiting to see the, the, the consolation of Israel, the Savior of Israel. And as he saw Jesus as a baby in the temple, he said this about Jesus. He is, Jesus is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And then he turned to Mary, and you may, you may remember his words to Mary. He said, a soul will pierce a sword will pierce your soul. Right? And so we see, we've seen from the very beginning that there will be this opposition to Christ and something will happen to him that will pierce the soul of Mary. Well, the text we have before us this morning, it sort of heightens this, this opposition. It begins to take it to a new level and it's sort of the beginning of this soul-piercing event, the that includes the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the death of Christ. And so what Luke draws to kind of the forefront of our attention is the way that Jesus prepares himself for these horrific events that are going to follow. The story then, as, as we think about Luke chapter 22, it kind of moves from him instructing his disciples in the upper, upper room to a glimpse into the inner life and the prayer life of Christ. We see in Jesus then that it is through diligent prayer that he faces the crisis that he has before him. And then we'll see twice in, in, in one paragraph, he commends or commands his disciples to follow his instruction or his example. So here's how we could say the main point. When faced with trials, not only not any trial, but the, this crisis, Jesus turns to his Father in prayer, who hears and responds to his Son. Jesus then warns his disciples to be in vigilant prayer in order to avoid entering into temptation themselves. And then I think we see in that next paragraph how it sort of plays out, how Jesus is ready to face this crisis because he's relied on his Father, and the disciples are not because they've fallen asleep. All right, So that's where we're, that's where we're headed. All right, point number one this morning, Jesus relies on the Father through dependent prayer. We see there in verse 39, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So Jesus has just wrapped up the, the Lord's Supper there in, in the upper room, and he's been instructing his disciples, and now... He moves sometime in the late evening across that, that, that valley to the Mount of Olives, where again, you remember, you can kind of overlook Jerusalem there. And here he's in this, this garden on the Mount of Olives, sometimes called the Garden of Gethsemane. That's not in our text in Luke, but the other uh, Gospels let us know. It's like an olive orchard there that Jesus enters. And this has become his custom for him to go there. He's been teaching in the temple during the day. Uh, now at evenings, his custom was to go across the valley there and be on the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus does that with his disciples, which was his custom. And 
and he, he gets into the garden there and he withdraws, the text says, about a, a stone's throw from his disciples. And one of the things that, that Luke, again, highlights for us, and each gospel writer kind of has their own emphasis and things that they're pointing out, one of the things that Luke highlights is the great agony of Jesus there in the garden. And I think we see it a, a, a couple ways here. First, we see it in the context or the content of Jesus' request. He says there in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We see the agony of Christ in the request for this cup to be removed from him. Now, many of you know this and are aware, but the cup you know, biblically is, is so often used as a symbol of, of judgment. The cup being poured out is God's wrath being poured out. Right? So consider then for a moment a text like Psalm 75 that says this, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So what, a, what an image. Right? The Lord has prepared this, this cup and it's going to be poured out and the wicked are going to be forced to kind of drink this down to the dregs. The idea is like when you drink that last cup of coffee and there's some grounds in the bottom, like the very last drop. In fact, Jim Hamilton says this about Psalm 75. I think it kind of helps us capture the imagery. He says, the deeds people do are often treated by the biblical authors as the fruit of their life. The imagery in this verse seems to assume that the actions of those who have boastful, proud hearts amount to the grapes of wrath. That is, God harvests all the deeds of the proud, the grapes their hearts produce. He then treads them out in the winepress, ferments the drink to full strength, and prepares the cup. And he says, those who drink the cup down to its dregs have a full experience of the consequences of their actions. So they're, they're facing the wrath of God as a consequence of their boastful, proud, and sinful hearts. He says, this imagery then declares that God will judge the wicked, who will be given the full measure of the punishment they deserve. So that's the cup. Right, The full punishment that the wicked deserve. Yet here's Christ praying, Father, if it is your will, allow this cup to pass from me. Right? How that helps us understand the glory of what Jesus has come to accomplish on that cross. That he, the sinless one, drank down to the drugs, to the very last drop, the full consequences of sin, the wrath of God. He choked down the cup of judgment for anyone who, who comes to him in humble faith and joyfully receives the forgiveness of sins that he offers on the basis of his work, not on the basis of ours. And so this is what, he's, what Jesus is agonizing over. This is what is bringing him great distress. It's not mere physical suffering. It's the reality that he will endure as our substitute, the unmitigated, unfiltered wrath of God. It is the right consequence of our selfishness and our rebellion 
against him. What Jesus is distressed over here in the garden is not mere suffering. It is that his suffering is the expression of God's wrath for the sins of the world. It is the particular kind of suffering that Jesus knows he is about to endure that causes him, right? as, as it would cause anyone who fully you know, possesses a human nature. Christ fully possesses a human nature. So he is distressed, even though he's without sin, as he looks forward to this suffering. Suffering for the sins of the world. So we see Jesus' agony in his request to the Father. We also see it actually in his physical response uh, based on what he is about to endure. If you want to drop down for a moment, just down there to verse 44. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So Luke actually uses that word agony. We're going to use it a lot, distress, agony. Really, it means to experience apprehensiveness in light of some distress that is coming. And so as he prays, as he prepares himself for, for what he's about to suffer, Luke says that his sweat became like great drops of blood. Now, I would, I would argue that this is a, 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 pi- a picture, right, of profuse sweating in light of uh, uh, what he's about to... It's like when you cut your head and, it, you know, your head just bleeds like crazy, right? It's dr- it will not stop. So he's, he's sweating as if they were great drops of blood. Now, I know... I know there's like a physical thing that can happen to people when they're in such distress that like blood vessels break or something and they actually like blood is mixed in with their sweat. But I, I think this is just a metaphor here because there's actually a word in the Greek that's called a marker of comparison. This is like this. And it kind of lets us know, I think, that this is a, a simile. He was sweating as if or like great drops of blood were falling from him. Either way, even if you don't agree there, that's okay. The the point remains that Jesus is affected physically by what is in front of him. And I just, as I think about Jesus' request to be spared from this wrath, as I think about his physical distress, these great, as if great drops of blood are falling from him, I'm just, I just think about this. How lightly do we then, how lightly we treat our sin. Right? We see in, in Jesus this great distress and agony based on what he's about to face, yet we oftentimes just treat our sins so light. We laugh about it. We excuse it away. We pamper it. Think we can kind of control it instead of seeking to put it to death. But here in Jesus, I think we get a a sense of the incredible weight that Jesus must bear because of the very things that we tend to dismiss, laugh about. So as Jesus prepares to drink the cup, he asks his father that if this cup could be removed. And he's, he's so aware of what it means for this wrath to be poured out. That he's even having this physical response and this and anguish of his soul. But notice then, in light of all this, 
Jesus' willingness to submit to the will of the Father. Right? So, so we sort of looked at kind of the, the request in there, let this cup pass from me, but it's, that, that request is actually bracketed up on both ends with, if it be your will, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Right? So actually the, the focus of Jesus' prayer does not fall on, on the request as much as it does on his willingness to submit to the will of the Father. He says, if it be your will. Right? So when Jesus asks this, when he makes this request, he, he, he isn't saying, if, if you can do this. Right? What he's actually saying is, if it's determined by you, if this is your plan, if this is your will, then take this from me. And I think what it does is it stresses the willingness of Jesus to fulfill that which has been determined from before the foundation of the world. We see, even in Jesus' anguish, that he is willing to submit to the will of the Father. And I think we see in his request that Jesus does not just have some sort of death wish per se. Right? He knows this is his mission. He knows this is his goal. But what we really see is not that he's, he's desiring to, to suffer the wrath of God. It's that he's willing to lay down his life as the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate act of selfless love. Jesus says, the greatest among you is the one who will serve. And we see in Jesus the greatest act of self-sacrifice. It's the greatest act that's ever been done by anyone and will ever be done. It's, it's true greatness defined and lived out. And Jesus ought to be, like we try to do in our services, he ought to be exalted and praised because of what he's given up. His very life. Still, there's sort, of, there's sort of questions that remain in the text, right? There's, there's hardships that remain. Many are kind of perplexed by the request of Jesus. Is this, is this some kind of a lack of faith? Is he wavering in his mission? You know, there's questions that arise because hasn't, hasn't Jesus been anticipating this, this moment? Right? He just told his disciples that he's been looking forward to observing the Passover with them. He's teaching them in that moment that his, his body's going to be broken, his blood is going to be poured out. I think we see a, a, a couple things here. One, uh, again, one thing that Luke does is I think he highlights for us the humanity of Christ, the true and full humanity of Christ. Because Jesus has taken on a human nature like ours, he experiences what any person would experience if they truly understood the sort of suffering that, that Jesus understands that he is about to endure. The sorts of things we've been saying about the wrath of God are going to fall on Christ. And any person that truly understood that would be in this sort of distress. And that brings me to, to a second thing we see in Jesus' kind of recoiling at the, at the thought of, the cross and the thought of the cup. It's that far from being some sign of failure or weakness or sin in Jesus, this is, this is the right response. This is an example of his perfection. There's a rightness to Jesus' request. There's a rightness to his distress and his anguish. Because he understands 
And he knows, as God in the flesh, all that the cup entails. His desire to avoid the wrath of God is exactly what a righteous person would do in desire and request of the Father. He loves the Father. He's one with the Father. And like many of the psalmists, he abhors the idea of being cut off from the love the love of the Father in enduring the alienated, I'll get this out, alienating consequences of sin. He abhors that thought. It's the last thing he wants. He's perfectly godly in that he wants to avoid the wrath of God. So Jesus has, I would argue, he's done both. He's earnestly desired this because he knows what it's going to accomplish. He knows it's the purpose for which he has come. And he also experiences great distress at the thought of bearing the wrath of God. So what does the father do as he, as he hears his son praying? Well, in response to the prayer of Jesus, the father sends an angel there to minister to Christ. There in verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Now, angels are ministering spirits. They, they do the will of the Father. We might think of a, a text like Psalm 91, 11, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Right? If you... If you if you remember that passage, it might be not necessarily from Psalm 91. It might be from Luke 4, where Jesus actually, or Satan actually tried to use that to trip Jesus up and say, why don't you throw yourself off of this? After all, hasn't God promised that he'll, he'll bear you up, he'll protect you? But here, Jesus is not testing God. He's walking in the will of God. He's seeking to do the will of God. So God commands an angel to minister and to strengthen Christ in the time of his distress. And we aren't told like what that means and what that looks like. So the emphasis doesn't fall on what kind of strength was given or, or the means by which that happened. The emphasis falls on the fact that God the Father responded to the faithful prayer of His Son and He met Him in His hour of need. Right? The Father hears the Son and He responds to the Son and He gives Jesus the Son everything He needs in that moment. All right. So understanding that, right, what, what Jesus is, is facing in the garden, then we're ready to sort of look at how Jesus begins and ends this, this moment, right? This moment is, we talked about brackets earlier. Well, this moment's sort of bracketed by Jesus' command. It's, it's there in verse 40. Pray, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's the command of Christ. And given what Jesus has been telling his disciples, right? He, he, he's predicted that opposition is going to come, rejection is going to come, you're going you're gonna to deny me three times, Peter. All the disciples are going to be sifted like wheat by Satan. He He's going to keep them from completely and fully and finally walking away. You'd think that in light of all that Jesus has said, they would be the ones to say, Jesus, can we go to the garden and can we fall down and can we pray because of all these things that you've 
told us. We ought to be crying out to the Father and asking for His help. But the disciples, like, like us, at times, far too often, self-assured. And so they neglect to join Jesus in prayer. In fact, when Jesus returns there in verse 45 to His disciples, He finds them sleeping. Right? It's been a long day. For one, Jesus' impending death has finally began to kind of saddle on the disciples as a reality. Remember, Peter finally brought himself to say, Lord, I'll go with you to prison or even die. Right? So they're finally starting to understand what Jesus has in mind with his death. I think that's what Luke means when he says they were sleeping for sorrow. Right? They're, they're, they're beginning to experience the sorrow of what Jesus has been teaching them, and it's finally beginning to set in. They're filled with grief, but instead of turning to prayer, they, they go to sleep. And so the other bookend, so to speak, comes in verse 46. Jesus apparently wakes up the disciples because he speaks to them in verse 46, rise and pray. Why? That. That's like a, a, a purpose statement. That. Why should I pray? that you may not fall into temptation. By not looking to God, by not doing what Jesus was just doing there in the garden, they are prone to faithlessness. They're prone to wander. You know, one thing we say often about Jesus is that He's, he's much more than an example Right, and we'll see that we'll see that throughout this text. He's much more than an example, but he's not less than an example. Right? So I think the fact that Luke kind of includes these two commands that sort of begin and end the section actually uh, alert us to the fact that one thing Luke is trying to get us to see is that the, the disciples were meant to follow the pattern that Jesus laid out before them. Pray that you don't fall into temptation. Then Jesus goes and prays. He's strengthened by the Father. And then he prays more earnestly. And then he comes back in their sleep and he says it again. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus depends on the Father as, as an example, as our example, in times of trials and temptations. Right? And as we've seen, you know, if you were in Bible Hour a couple weeks ago, trials tend to be accompanied with temptations. Right? We, we, we want to respond sinfully to hardship. So we want to become like Christ. So as Jesus here prepares His disciples, we too should seek to become like Christ in dependence, prayer, and trust in the Father to give us exactly what we need to remain faithful to Him in the various crises and trials that we face. If we're going to become like Christ, then, in, in this area, we need to renounce our self-sufficiency. I, I said the disciples are self-sufficient. We, we too often are self-sufficient. Why do we say that? Because prayer is actually the announcement that we are dependent on, on God Himself. It's the announcement that we are reliant on Him through prayer. You know, one of the lines that stood out to me as I was kind of reading, reading this text is in verse 44. I, I, I appreciate that it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. 
being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. You know, as I thought about that, I was, I was both convicted and challenged and comforted, kind of all at the same time, that, that Jesus was driven by distress to, the, to prayer and to the Father. I, I was convicted and challenged because so often when hardship comes to me, my first instinct is to try to fix the problem or, or try to, try to or, or even like Dave's been dealing with in, in Bible hour, I want to I grasp at things that are too great and too marvelous for me. I want to seek answers to my problem that are sort of within my control. I'm reminded in this passage, not only of my own frailty and weakness, but of the goodness of God, how He hears from the Son. And if you are in the Son, if you are in Christ, He delights to hear from you as His child. So prayer matters because it expresses our need for God. It demonstrates our reliance on His care. And the way to faithfulness, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And again, what the disciples are about to face was to be sifted so that they might walk away from Christ. That's the temptation in front of them. So the way to remain faithful in the midst of circumstances that might tempt us to to walk away is to be reliant on Him through prayer. How do we face the opposition of the world that Jesus has been talking about? It's through prayer. So you can... You can certainly pray for yourself to be strengthened, but I would encourage you as, as a church body, as, we, as many of us here have kind of covenanted together to live life together, to pursue Christ together, I would encourage you to be praying for one another, pray for your elders, pray, pray for your fellow church members, pray for the young people of our church that they might remain faithful to Christ, that they might see their reliance and continue to turn to him. Another way I think we might seek to become more like Christ is by focusing more on the will of God than our own requests. Right? By focusing more on the will of God than our own requests. You see really clearly in Jesus' prayer there that priority number one for him is to do the plan of God, to do the will of God, to, be, to walk in the will of God. His request is actually secondary. And too often, we sort, of, we sort of get that backwards. We want to treat God at times as little more than one who should meet all our little demands, all our little requests. But we should approach Him with humility and trust that the Father gives only good gifts. He might might answer you in a way that was different than the way you hoped. His answer to your request may be to strengthen you that you might endure the trial instead of take it away. One thing we can do as we try to become more and more like Christ is to focus on the will of God and the fatherly care of God. All right, so now let's look quickly at this next paragraph here, beginning in verse 47 the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Jesus has been strengthened through prayer. He's demonstrated his reliance on the Father's provision. The disciples have been sleeping, and so they are left unprepared for what they're about to face. And we see this as 
as Jesus is teaching, the crowd arrives, and we see two very different responses. Point number two this morning, Jesus is strengthened for the trial that lies in front of him. He's been given what he needs to face what is about to come. Look there in verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? While Jesus is, again, instructing his disciples, helping them, pray that you may not enter into temptation, a crowd shows up led by Judas, right? And there's a, there's a bit of like shock in a sense in the text, it's, it's, you know, the the ESV leaves it untranslated, but it's like, behold, look, this, this crowd is here. Right? So it's, it's sort of a change of, of scene that's meant to kind of shock the reader that in the middle of the night, as Jesus is praying with his disciples the way he's done many nights before, now here comes a crowd that's led by Judas. And this crowd is made up mainly of Jewish officials, right? Uh, John implies uh, there's some, maybe some Roman soldiers there as well, but Luke says chief priests, officers of the temple, and elders. And in front of this hostile crowd that has been trying to trap Jesus, trying to uh, destroy Jesus' reputation, has finally settled on the fact they must kill Jesus, out in front of them is Judas, who had earlier conspired with the religious leaders come under the evil influence of Satan. Luke draws attention to Judas in a couple ways. Really, he's kind of, I think, magnifying the, the, the betrayal that this is. And he does, it, he does it by mentioning, again, he's done this before, but he mentions again that Judas is one of the twelve. So again, Luke just wants to highlight for us, like, can you believe the betrayer was one of the inside guys? was one of the twelve. He also kind of highlights the, the grievous nature of this by pointing out that Judas betrays him with a kiss. Right, again, the other Gospels kind of tell us that that was Judas's way of identifying Jesus so they could arrest the right guy. I think Luke focuses more on the irony of the event. A kiss was a a typical greeting of loving affection, respect. But here it's the very thing that's used to betray the Son of Man. And so Jesus looks there at Judas in verse 48 and says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Right? Clearly, Jesus, as he's done throughout the Gospel of Luke, identifies himself as the Son of Man, which we've said many times is a messianic title that identifies Jesus as the God-man, the Davidic king, the savior, the Messiah. He, he's the one who has come into the world. Yet he's betrayed by one of his own with a kiss. He's the son of man. He deserves the kiss. Right? He, de he deserves the love, the affection, the respect that this, this kiss was meant to picture, but Judas is using that very sign to betray the Son of Man. And so with the arrival of the mob and the betrayal of Judas, 
we see that the answer to the request is now made plain. Right? The cup will not pass. It is not the will of God that the cup pass from the Son. This is the way it must be. And he's been strengthened to endure the trial ahead of facing this trial himself. So Jesus is ready. Right? He's received what he needs to remain faithful. He has prepared himself through prayer, perfectly living out what God expects of someone in the middle of that crisis. Right Again, don't think that Jesus praying and uh, asking to be spared the cup is some sort of unfaithfulness. He has perfectly done what, what a godly, righteous person should do because he's God and man, and he is perfect. So he, he, he agonizes over this, but the fathers responded with provision that Jesus needed. And the hour has come, and Jesus is now ready. Now, contrast that then with the disciples. Right? The disciples were sleeping. They did not enter into prayer so as to avoid temptation. They've neglected that. They've forgotten their dependence on God, and so they, they are not ready. So as they see their master there, their, their teachers, they see the Messiah, they see Christ ready to be arrested and hauled away. They asked there in verse 49, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? I think the question is asked in such a way that, that an affirmative answer is implied. Right? It's like asking your wife, should I take out the trash? Right? You know the answer. You just want, all right. you just want a little credit for taking out the trash. All right, I get it. That's the way the question is, is asked, I think. It's, it, there's, a, there's an affirmative assumption applied in, in the question. Shouldn't we take out the sword? It expects a positive reply. And, you know, Jesus had just said moments earlier that they're going to need every provision that they have, including the sword. And we kind of talked about how we should think about that when we were in that text. They assumed that Jesus meant it for this moment. Right? This is clearly why Jesus told us we need a sword. It's time to pull out the sword. And before Jesus can even give an answer, one of them, right? Again, John tells us that it was Peter. But one of them in Luke takes a sword and cuts the ear of the servant of the high priest. He, he like cuts it off. Right? And we don't know exactly whether this was like Peter's, if he's a swordsman or not, right? Is this Peter's intended target? Or did he just kind of go bonkers and happen to hit the servant? instead of the high priest. Who knows? We don't know. It was dark. But what we do know is that instead of commending the disciples' willingness to take up arms, right? If you were leading a group of, of people, put your, you can think about yourself for a moment. If you were leading a group of people, and there was some that came to betray you, and your people were willing to, like, kill for you, our, I don't know, we might be like, that's right. Thank you. About time somebody had my back. You know, but... That's not, that's not what Jesus does here. He's not just, he, again, he's after their, their hearts. He wants to, them to love God, to know God, to worship God. He's not just after gathering fans. So Jesus rebukes them. No more of this, he says in verse 51. He doesn't need Peter to take up the sword. Right? Jesus is Lord of the situation. 
He is Lord of this moment. He knows he must face arrest and death. He knows he must drink the cup down to the dregs. So instead of using like the chaos of this moment to flee like a fugitive, Jesus heals the servant of the high priest. He shows compassion and loving actions towards his enemy, towards one who was there to ensure that he gets hauled off and put to death. In fact, this is something that Jesus had instructed his disciples to do way back in Luke chapter 6. He said, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And here we see Jesus acting in love and compassion towards his very enemy. And one thing that means that his detractors cannot haul him off and paint him honestly and realistically as a political revolutionary. Right? He allows himself to be taken into custody, even reversing the effects of his brash disciple, Peter. So Jesus, then after he's done that, he turns his attention to the mob. He says, have you come out there in verse 52? Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? Keep in mind, he's just healed the enemy. So if you come out to to get me as a thief, Jesus is no thief, he's no robber, he's no criminal. He's come as one who has come to heal and to save, to set free. Yet they want to treat him as a, a, a criminal. It will be fulfilled then, right? Jesus said that this will be fulfilled that he will be numbered among the transgressors. We said this last week, that he will, be, he, he will be treated as a transgressor. He will be treated like a criminal. He will be treated as a sinner on our account so that we might be treated as if we have the perfect, righteous record of Christ. But here he sets out to expose the hypocrisy of, of the mob. He points out again in verse 53, you could have arrested me at any time. I've been teaching in the temple. Now, you could have come and got me, but if you remember, they were afraid of the crowd. That's why they didn't arrest Jesus in daylight. That's why they didn't haul him out of the temple. They were afraid. So they've come under the cover of night because they're cowards, and they've come in secret to capture Jesus, and he points it out to them. Why here? Why now? One, they were afraid. But there's another reason. Their hypocrisy and their fear of man is not the only reason that Jesus is betrayed at night. Jesus brings that out in his last phrase there. This is your hour. This is your hour and the power of darkness. In other words, Jesus is Lord of the situation. God's plan is perfectly unfolding. But part of the plan is for the this hour to come where evil will have its full expression. This is your time. Darkness has has come in more than one sense. Yes, the sun is down. Yes, it's late at night. But this is a dark hour because evil is expressing itself. 
Satan has come into Judas, and Judas has betrayed them, and these chief priests hate Jesus, and they want him dead. Men, Satan, wicked angels, religious leaders, Judas as a disciple, they, they have their moment. They have their moment. But even then, this is the hour that's been appointed to them. They are simply fulfilling the will of God. The power of darkness, the hour of darkness will be expressed for a little while but it will soon be overcome by Jesus, the light of the world. All right, so we've, we've, we've said this from, from the beginning, that the main point of our passage is that Jesus turns to his Father in prayer, and the Father responds to his Son and meets his need. So we spoke, we spoke earlier as Jesus as the perfect example, and that, that is true. But we also said that's not all that he is. We needed something more than an example, right? We, we understand that, right? We can't just look at Jesus and say, oh, now I know what to do. I'll just do it, right? We needed something more than an example. And we see that in Christ, he actually obeyed perfectly where we fall so short. He takes the cup. He takes the cup that we deserve. The, the son takes the cup so that we might be treated like sons, right? sons and daughters, children of God. In other words, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ, you can approach God as Father, not based on what you've done, but based on the perfection of Jesus. He is the Son, and if you're in the Son, you can approach the Father, and He hears you, and He responds and meets the need that you have in that moment. The Son was cut off, right? He was treated as a transgressor. He drank the cup of wrath, treated as if he were an enemy, forsaken, so that we might be treated as sons and daughters. You can come to him in your time of need, assured that he hears you, and assured that God gives his best to his children. I like what J.I. Packer said. He says, God fixes our prayers on the way up. If he does not answer the prayer we made, he will answer the prayer we should have made. Why? Because He's a loving Father. And we can be in that sort of relationship with Him only in and through Christ. And in this, as you think about Christ taking the cup so that we might call God Father and approach Him as Father and pour out a request to our Father, if you begin to wonder, does the Father really have good intentions for me? We can look to Jesus who took the cup on our behalf so that we might be treated as a child. Jesus, our sympathetic high priest, and our righteous representative before God, and our perfect example of godliness. He's ready for this hour because he depended on the Father in prayer. And if you are in Christ, you are invited this morning to depend on your Father in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we do confess that we so often are self-sufficient, self-reliant, we do admit that we fall so short. God, would you forgive us of our lack of concern for our own sin, our lack of understanding of our own hearts? Would you do in us through your Spirit what Dan read this morning, search us and reveal any wicked way? Lord, may you conform us to Christ. Lord, if there are some here that don't know you and cannot count you as Father, would you open eyes to see the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ? Amen.